0: I always enjoy preaching on what I'm going to preach on today, something I do probably two times a year, and it's because when people get a hold of this and allow it to speak into their life and change their life, it brings incredible lift in their life, and it's one of those messages that's really designed to speak to people that are part of the family of God, that have actually bowed the knee in that sense, and given their life to Jesus, and their life has been changed by him. So it's really aimed at that. And so as we do that today, let's, uh, let's bow together in prayer as we look into God's word. Father, thank you for this time. We pray your anointing, we pray that you would speak truth, that you would speak in your gentle and yet very straightforward ways. And thank you that you're a good God that cares so much for us goes beyond words that we see typified in the, the gift of Jesus. And so thank you for your word. Speak to us now through it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. There are times in our life where in practical terms, we become what Craig Groeschel calls Christian atheists. And we're concluding a series of messages based around that idea today, where the idea is I'm in, in other words, I believe there's a God, I've given my life to Jesus, He's changed my life, He's forgiven my sin, I've invited Him to lead my life, but I have made clear in no uncertain terms that in one or more areas of my life, that's off-limits, God. I want to keep control of that area of my life. And so Craig would say, in doing that, and I would heartily agree, we're basically acting like God doesn't exist in that part of my life, or the things he says relevant to that just don't matter. And I become a Christian atheist. And we've looked at a number of different issues. And today we're going to look at the idea of I'm in, but what's mine is mine. What's mine is mine. And we have this unusual idea that our source of security in life fluctuates around our financial condition. And we have this unusual idea that actually I'm the one that decides how these resources are supposed to be used. Because what's mine is mine. And actually today's talk as we look at the text we're going to look at here in a moment, is really directed, the the text says, at rich people. Now, of course, the Bible uh, is applicable across the board to everyone, especially that's part of the family of God, and there isn't a decision you make or an issue you approach in life that the Scripture doesn't speak into. Absolutely. But the text today is quite specific in addressing, quote-unquote, Rich people. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17 through 19. And 1 Timothy is about two thirds of the way through the New Testament. If you come to, you know, Corinthians, keep going to the right. If you come to Galatians, keep going. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone a little too far. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the young pastor. Timothy, and that would mean that he's at least 30 years of age in that culture. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, he says, Tim, (coughs) excuse me, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's the kind of God we serve. He wants us to richly enjoy life. This is one of the things. Command them to do good, Tim, to, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. See, this is the heart of God. He doesn't want you some to have some pretend life, some manufactured life, some facsimile of a real life. He wants you to take hold of the life that's truly life, the good stuff, the good stuff. Now, some of you are thinking when when I read this passage, "Command those who are rich in this world." You're thinking to yourself, "Woo!" <laughs> this is awesome, I don't have to listen at all because I'm definitely not rich. And you're high-fiving yourself and you're thinking, I can just play with my phone the whole time that Dixon is droning on. But just a second. Andy Stanley has asked, I think, a very interesting question and the question is this, who are the rich? Who are the rich? Who needs to pay particular attention to this passage, You know, in my experience, and certainly there's a lot of, lot of exceptions to this, but in my experience, um, oftentimes we're tempted to decide if we're quote-unquote rich or not by looking at other people. And we assume some things about them and what they might make and stuff like that, and we compare themsel- ourselves to them. And then we look at our own financial balance sheet and we ask ourselves, do I feel rich? And that feeling of being rich is quite an elusive feeling in our culture and in our society. And we often think to ourselves, again, there's a lot of exceptions to this, but we often think to ourselves, if I just had that amount of money, you know, my income is here, if I just had that amount of money way up here, then I would be rich. Fidelity did a survey recently in the United States of 1,000 millionaires. And they asked them a series of questions. And by the way, they had an average net uh, of, net worth of $3.5 million. So 1,000 millionaires with an average net worth of $3.5 million. They asked them a series of questions. Do you feel rich? 40% of them said, absolutely not. I have no idea what rich is, but I know it's certainly not me. And I don't know who is. So they sort of said, "Well, let's explore this a little more." You have about three, on average, about three and a half million dollars in assets and, and money available to you, and so forth. What would you need to consider yourself rich? And they said, "Well," on their answers kind of came down to, we, "I would need about seven and a half million dollars to feel rich." Guess who? doesn't think having seven and a half million dollars would make you rich. Many of the people who have seven and a half million dollars. See, what I really think they were saying in their answers were this. I may have around three and a half million dollars, but I don't feel rich because I always assumed that if I was rich, then I would be content. I always assumed if I was really rich, then I would be successful. If I was really rich, then I would feel secure. Then I would have enough. But if I was really honest with you, Scott, I don't feel content. I don't feel particularly successful. I certainly don't feel secure. Can I let you in on a little secret? It's this. Just lean in a bit if you're ever trusting in money for any of those things, at the end of the day, you are going to be deeply disappointed. Deeply disappointed. I think financially, the temptation is to look at people that we think have more than us so that we can say, they're the rich people, not me. And then somehow... We're again tempted, and again, a lot of notable exceptions to this, but then we're tempted to rationalize and say, I don't need to be generous, because I'm not rich. Therefore, it's okay to have my life focused on getting more. In fact, we sometimes go even a step further and say, it's okay for me to be judgmental about those rich people that are so materialistic. But you know, if you were to really read your Bible realistically, based on the historical cultural, factual setting of that time, and then bear that in mind and translate it into our world today. You come up with a very different view. I did some looking around, and I know there's different people that'll give you different statistics on this, but this is more of an illustration. And somebody might quibble with me over these numbers a little bit, but it's more of the big idea here. And I understand that in the last number of years, The poverty rates have been declining in our world, but a significant percentage of our world live on less than $2.50 a day. That's their whole income. Kind of like the amount of money you spent on a coffee, perhaps on the way to church today. So when we start to view it in that light, what category does that put me in? Again, some people might quibble with me about these numbers a little bit. But if a person, from my understanding, makes $40,000 a year in Canada, which is about 20 if you make $20 an hour, you make about $40,000 a year. That puts you, compared to the rest of the world, not compared to North America, but to the rest of the world, in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. In biblical times, most people literally, and I mean literally, because we often like to throw this expression out, I'm just living from day to day. In biblical times, literally, many people struggled to live from one day to the next. And so biblically, Paul and Tim here are saying to us, if you have more than you need to literally make it from day to day, that probably puts us in the rich category. So congratulations, virtually everyone in this room is rich, awesome, let's high five everybody. There's likely very few people in the room today, maybe a couple, I don't know, for whom living from one day to the next is actually a struggle. And what I mean by that is they've made a reasonable and wise financial choices, but they still struggle to have enough food to actually survive from one day to the next. And of course, we're, off, we're so glad that people of every, every financial means are here. Everyone is welcome. But really, the words of verse 17 apply to basically everyone in the room here. Well, how do we handle this? Paul says, command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant. In other words, in the early church, there was some people... Tim, I've noticed in your church, there's some people in your church that are quite proud of their wealth and not in a healthy way. And maybe even there's a possibility in Tim's church, who knows, that they were being catered to you a little bit and treated better than those who had considerably less and were under-resourced. And Paul is saying, listen, Tim, you got to understand clearly that in the community of Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a biblical believer, if you've given your life to him, there's no room for those kinds of attitudes. In fact, later in the book of James, the half brother of Jesus writes this in James chapter 2. He says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It also says in Samuel that that man looks at the outward appearance of a person and God looks at the heart. So, Jesus is saying, look, if a homeless person comes and their clothes are somewhat ragged and maybe they don't even smell so well, they should be treated the same way, in the same loving way as a person that comes in that has vastly more resources than them. And so, Paul says to Timothy in verse 17. Uh, Command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. We're discovering this in Alberta now, aren't we? With the fluctuating economy. and Basically, there isn't a week that goes by that I don't hear about somebody else getting laid off. I was talking with my son this week who lives up in Calgary and works in a small company. They build custom homes, and there's just five of them, and they had to lay off one of the people. And it just is happening, and we're understanding the uncertainty of putting our hope in wealth. So he says, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So he's saying to us, uh, don't put your hope in money, (laughs) because money doesn't love you. Money didn't die on the cross for you. And money will certainly not save you. Here's another little tidbit, another little secret. It's not even our money. If you're a follower of Jesus, you understand biblically it's all God's. We're told in the scriptures that everything we have without exception is really a gift from him. That everything, we've been, entr- we've been entrusted with all this stuff, and we're called on to use it wisely. But it also says at the verse of, end of verse 17, we're to enjoy it too. In Matthew, it says God loves to give, Matthew 11, God loves to give good gifts to his children. And here he's saying, I'm giving this to you for your enjoyment. God is not a killjoy in any way. We're to use it very wisely, and we will give an account for how we've used it, but we're to enjoy it, and he loves to give good gifts. But some of us have this idea, God, you know, I'm going to give you my life, and I'm really looking forward to spending eternity with you, but what's mine is mine. We somehow get this weird idea that it's actually our money. This is why we get all heated up over it. No, God, our creator, he himself understands the joy of giving. The book is all about him giving to us in so many ways. And he's really saying to us in this passage, I want you to step into the kind of life where you can have the enjoyment that I have in giving. Have you discovered the joy of giving? Now, I don't know what people give. I'm not privy to that information, and I don't want to know that information, but I know enough about church, and I know enough about quite a few churches to know that this is a very generous church. And so I thank you for your generous giving. Um, I get that many people here understand biblical giving. They've gone on the journey with Jesus, and they get it. And they understand how cool it is to be part of that. An incredible privilege. And they, 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 they see God at work in their life as they do this. I simply invite those that are still learning about this, I invite you on the journey. It's really a great way to do life. It's a joy-filled way to do life. It's a very liberating way to live, to do life. As I said at the beginning of this message, it lifts you in life. You know, when people come to see me, if they're depressed or it's, they're going through tough stuff, one of the things I will inevitably say to them is I'll say, um, go and find something or someone in particular. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. Make it a very manageable thing. But find someone that you can help. Because if you're finding difficulty in your own life, you will get great lift in life by helping someone else. This is how God has created us. To be a giving people. That it can be actually incredibly fun to be a generous, giving person. Question. How often, how often do you ever come across a joyful person who is greedy, who is a hoarder, who is stingy? I can't think of one. It probably is somewhere, but I don't know them. I'm not trying to use guilt to manipulate you. Guilt is never, never gets us to the place of joy. Roy Sedman tells the story of this guy who had this really guilty conscience so much so that he couldn't sleep at night, and, so, and the reason was is because he'd been holding out on Revenue Canada. So he writes Revenue Canada, and he says, I haven't been able to sleep because last year on my tax return, I didn't declare all my income, I misrepresented it, and therefore I'm closing this check for $500. Then at the bottom of the letter, he wrote, P.S., if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. Guilt is not a good thing to motivate in this. All right. Uh, Now, having said that, guilt or being convicted is a is a good thing from God in this sense. It says in John chapters fourteen through sixteen, the Spirit of God convicts us of sin, and the goal there is not just to make us feel bad about ourselves. The goal is to point us to Jesus, to the cross. And so when I've done a sinful thing or done sinful things, he convicts me, he makes me feel guilty, he makes me feel remorse, so I'll look to Christ so I can repent of that, so he can heal me, and I have the release of being forgiven and being cleansed. And that's a cool thing. But to, so, so to gain a really generous heart, we have to allow this conviction to bring us to the foot of the cross, to say, wow, God, you know, I'm in, but I've been, I've been holding out. <laughs> and so I, I'm all in with you. I'm going to surrender. I'm acknowledging that everything I have is yours. And I want you to just change me on the inside, change my motivations, help me to see people as you see them to be generous. And when we do that, then verse 18 starts to get actualized in our life. Um, command them then, Tim, after they've gone on this ride of understanding God gives us all this for our enjoyment, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In the same way, they lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that it may take hold of the life that's truly life. So each one of us, whether we are biblically rich or not, As it might be defined in Scripture. Each one of us is invited to live a redeemed financial life. And Christ wants to redeem and and transform and enhance every part of life, including the financial area. And He wants, He says, Oh man, Scott, I really want you to discover in deeper and deeper ways the joy of giving, because it's such a cool thing. But when sin gets in the way, it makes us want to (laughs) clutch. Makes us want to hoard, makes us want to shut God out and be greedy. And sometimes we actually, and then we'll labor under these false illusions and we'll say things like, wow, I'd be more generous if only I had more. My experience, and again, lots of notable exceptions here, but my experience is often those that are quite under-resourced by percentage end up giving an awful lot. They can be among the most generous people. Something else I know, which saddens me, is that a majority of Christians don't tithe. And this is a very clear principle from Scripture. We've talked about this in the past. We see it all through the Old Testament. We certainly see it affirmed in the New Testament. As Jesus affirms the Old Testament and then says, you know that tithing stuff? You ought to keep that up. He says that in Matthew and in Luke. And it's never a legalistic thing. Some people think it's a legalistic thing, and they don't get giving at all when they look at it that way. It's a relationship thing. And it's an opportunity to say, God, because you first loved me, because you've provided for me in every conceivable way, I respond to this by saying, I love you, and I trust you. I don't really get how this works, but I'm just going to trust you. And tithing, which is is 10% right off the top before anything else, is just ground zero for giving as a biblical believer, as a Christian. And then we go from there. And this is absolutely established if you study in Scripture. Always, always, God calls for him to be first in our life. There's no exceptions to this. First fruits. Study it through the Old Testament and the New. He wants first place in our life. And so Jesus will say things following up to this, like, you know, it's more blessed to give than receive, it's just a way better way to live. You're going to end up with more joy. Not that it's bad to receive. In fact, we're really blessed when we receive. But it's even more blessing when we give. Richard Carlsgaard in Forbes magazine writes an article. This was a few years ago. But he wrote an an article called The Irrational Act of Tithing. And in it he writes, you know, people think if they give, if they tithe, that they'll end up with less But then he writes about how some business people have discovered as they started tithing, they actually had their life enhanced. I'm not saying they had more money per se, but their life was enhanced. And what happens is when I begin to give in this way, which seems kind of irrational when you first think about it, I go on this incredibly grand spiritual experience with God. This faith-filled experience, and I begin to discover that God supplies all my needs. I'm not talking about you going off half cocked and doing crazy things. No, when we use wisely the resources that He's um, entrusted us with, He goes with us. So I and I'm also decidedly not talking about these, those that would teach heretically about this prosperity idea. You know, give me a thousand dollars. And God will give you more than that in return. Not in Bible. Now, does God sometimes do that? Yeah, he does. Because God is a sovereign God. And he decides how things go. And so sometimes he does. But not always. The blessings can come in a variety of ways. But if I don't go on the adventure... I don't discover that. But when I go on the adventure, when I give, what we're going to begin to find is my joy goes up. When I give joyfully and liberally, my joy goes even higher. When I give, my worry begins to go down because I find myself trusting God instead of trusting in my money. When I give, my empathy for hurting people goes up because I'm really getting tuned into the things that really matter to God. And I see them as God sees them, and I get this incredible joy from helping them. When I give, my fear goes down. Another guy in the same article wrote, I found when I took the risk of tithing, it made it easier to take risks in other areas of life, including vocationally and financial risks. See, when I give, I'm more free. Because Jesus said in another place, no one can serve two masters so when I start letting go of money, what happens is money starts letting go of me. Now, there's nothing wrong with money. Nothing wrong with money at all. In fact... When we're legally earning money, we're commended for doing this. In Matthew, I think it's 25, Jesus, I could be wrong, but it's in Matthew. (laughs) It's one of those chapters. Anyway, Jesus commends people for making copious amounts of money. And the idea is not to hoard it and to use it for all selfish things. We enjoy it, but we use it as a funnel to then continue giving and being even more generous. One of the songs we sang right at the beginning of the service talks about this. And so making lots and copious amounts of money is commended in Scripture in order that we might be even more generous. So all of these things I've been talking about will tend to increase in life when I start letting go of money because then money lets go of me. So he says, be rich in good deeds. Now there's two ways to go about this. Um, and I'm not, you know, well, maybe I am, we'll see. Uh, there's there's two ways to go about this. Um, one is to be quite systematic in your giving. Lord, would you help me to be very intentional and build into the structure of my life, into the plan of my life, just a very intentional way of giving. But I'm also because today's great cup Sunday, I'm going to put an I'm going to use I'm going to let they have an audible as well, which is when they change the play at the, the line of scrimmage. I'm going to be very intentional in giving, but I'm also going to be open to even more giving and a change if you see fit that goes beyond what you've already showed me. The other way is to just do it when you feel like it. When the mood strikes you. So which works? Well, they both work, but let's let's think of it this way. Two people both want to get into shape. Both of them agree and believe in exercise. One of them chooses to just approach it by saying, I'm going to exercise whenever I remember to, whenever the mood strikes me, whenever I feel like it. The other guy says, I'm going to, I know it's tough to do, so I'm going to schedule this very deliberately. And I'm going to choose, and I'm going to get somebody to help me maybe, to keep me accountable, to do this whether I feel like it or not. And I'll be very intentional in my exercise program. But I'm also going to go for a walk once in a while, or, or go for a hike or whatever, in addition to what I've already planned in my exercise schedule. Which guy is in better shape a year from now? In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, each person should give what they've decided to give in their heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You should never feel manipulated or pressured when you give. That's not God's way. And Really what he's saying here is get away with God And just make a heart decision. Just say, you know what, God, everything, I get it now. Everything I have is a gift from you. Thanks so much for that. Thanks for my salvation. Thanks for your provision in every way. And I just, you know, I really haven't done this, but now I'm just going to really turn this financial resources type stuff all over to you. No more of this I'm in, but what's mine is mine. And you can just do with it as you see fit. Just lead me and then give as God directs. No pressure. You often hear me say, I'll say it again don't give $1 more or $1 less than exactly what God lays on your heart to give. And then, very prayerfully, deliberately, relationally, not out of a sense of religious duty or do's and don'ts or some Pharisaical, legalistic approach to that. That's so empty. You do it, it says in Corinthians, sacrificially and liberally and joyfully. Don't ever be the kind of giver that says, I'll give to God if there's some money left over. Wow, that's not biblical at all. Be very intentional. And then we set up our financial patterns of giving around that. And so we make, because he's the first in our life and he's a first fruits God who it says over and over again in Scripture, the first check I write, the first debit I do. We used to do checks all the time as we gave. Now we do debits. Or the first text. We've got texting now to give. We don't tithe by accident. And we remember that tithing is just a jumping off point. It's just a launching point for this adventure that God wants to take us on. You know, I just want to say, give generously. I was always taught as a kid when I first came to Christ. My pastor taught me this. Give generously to missions, because God is a missionary-minded God, and then he'll just take care of the rest. And man, I've found that to be true in the last 40 years. Absolutely. And so, when you look at your bulletin on the back there, there's two slots that says Global Advance in Canadian Ministry. I want to talk about this a bit. We've invited you to give even more liberally to these areas this year. And here's why. Global Advances, all in in our family of churches, all the missionaries, we call them international workers now. And you know why? Because so many of them serve in what we call creative access places, where it's very dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. Where you can lose your freedom, your job, educational opportunities, you can become, they'll, they'll enslave people, they certainly kill people. This happens every day. And some of our international workers are serving in places where it's so dangerous we can't use their names, we can't tell you their country, because it's just not safe. So these people are out, many of them are at the point of the spear in tough, tough places. And when you give to Global Advance, that helps make sure they're taken care of. That's a good thing to do. The Canadian ministry stuff deals with all our stuff here in Canada. So like Quebec, which is the least reached region in the Western Hemisphere. And with our First Nations folks and and different things like that. So when you give to those things, it's helping those that we want to come alongside. And do the journey with together. And we encourage you to give. And so when you give to the general fund. With the uh, the global advance rather. You're caring for people like Aaron prayed for. uh, Curtis and Linda who are down in Paraguay. And uh, Ian and Rebecca. And uh, Rachel. People you hear us talk about. But we never talk about where they are. Because it's not safe. To be a follower of Jesus where they are. Not safe at all. So we have to talk to them in code all the time can't use the word god or anything like that not safe so how's it going when i was when i came to christ i was almost 11 years old i'm 56 now my sister was 8 my parents who i admire greatly for this were in their mid 30s around 34 35 years of age They came to Christ. We we had gone to church all all our life, but we had never, ever come to the place of having a personal relationship with Jesus until we first heard about it when we were that age. And over the course of a year, all four of us individually, because no one can do it for you, individually gave our life to Christ. And very soon after this, we began to understand from Bible the principle of tithing and, and then giving on top of that. And so I admire my parents in their mid-30s, one-income family. They started doing this. They'd never done that. They'd thrown a buck in the plate or five bucks or something like that. I admire my parents. And then they taught the next generation, which is one of the coolest things you can teach your kids, because to be honest with you, it's no big deal for me at all. I don't even think about it, because I learned this healthy habit when I was eleven. And so, you know, that first, right off the top, before taxes or anything else, that first 10% goes to the general fund of the church I'm part of. And then missions giving and stuff's all on top of that, and other things. And some of the greatest joys of my life and our married life have been, you know, where we brought groceries to people that needed it, or put tires on the car of that missionary And so, I get passionate about this because I've been privileged to discover the joy of this. And I invite you on the journey. Because it says in verse 19, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold, not of some semblance of a life, so they will take hold of the life that's Truly life. But you never
1: would have got to that place had you not had the courage to first step forward and try. Friends, it's so often the case that when we look to God, He shows us the better way, but sometimes we have to be willing to step forward. We have to be willing to try doorknobs. We have to be willing to move down the hall because His better way comes as we trust in Him and as we have faith and as we step forward rather than waiting for more. And so first steps can look like a number of different things. It could mean reaching out to somebody. It could mean picking up the phone. It could mean putting out your resume. It could mean going to see a counselor. It could mean going on a first date. It could mean writing a letter. It could mean saying, I'm interested. It could mean uh, saying, I'm willing to try, or I'm sorry, or can we work at this? It can mean numbers of different things. But at some point in our decision-making processes, You have to be willing to step up and you have to be willing to step out. I think of Peter as he was standing and looking over the side of a boat into a stormy, stormy sea. And Jesus had his hand out and said, come. I think the invitation is similar to us here today. And I'm willing to bet that on the practical side of moving forward, there are many of us who are frozen in this room. And Jesus is just saying, would you just... Try and take the first step. And I think that's part of the decision that we need to make here today. Last night, I was at a celebration for some police officers who got promoted. And as we were sitting around some tables talking about uh, the excitement of becoming a sergeant or a staff sergeant or an inspector, some of the conversation moved to the world that we live in. This is a messy place. It's a hard place. There's challenges that are in front of us as a city and as uh, that are in front of us as people, and yet God is inviting us to continue to look to Him and to continue to make decisions and to continue to walk in a better way. And as messy as Lethbridge can be right now, as messy as our lives can be right now, that doesn't mean that our decisions have to be impeded, or our decisions have to be inhibited, friends as we desire to live in stronger ways for Jesus, let me encourage you that perhaps the best way that we can move forward, the best way that we can live for him is to start with a posture of slowing down and pushing pause. The next thing is that we can stop and we can pray. The next thing is that we can gather people around us to speak into our lives and to share our lives with. And the last thing is that we can step forward and we can try. And it's just a template. It's not a perfect formula. And so when you go from this place here today and you said well, I tried, I paused, I prayed, I gathered people and I stepped forward and it still was a bit of a calamity. You can still come and talk to me about it. That's great. But it's not a perfect template. There's gonna be other pieces that maybe you add in. There's gonna be different things that you try. There's gonna be different tensions and pressures that feed into your situation. But it's a starting point. And can I encourage us and can I implore us? That it's a posture that we can assume and we can embrace here today. And it will help us to be more all in for Jesus. I'm going to invite us to pray, and so I'm going to ask you to bow your head. And right now, I'm just going to stop for a moment. And I want you to pray, if if this has been relevant for you here this morning, I want you to pray a simple prayer. And the prayer is this I'm in Jesus, but give me courage. The prayer could be I'm in, but I need help. It could be I'm in. But, but show me the better way. I'm going to just give you a brief moment to pray that prayer as an act of surrender. And maybe you need to hold out your hands as a physical posture of surrender, but take a moment if you need to do this, if you sense that there's a decision in front of you that you need to surrender or that you need to look to God in, uh, pray a, a simple prayer like that, and then I'll pray to close our time together. So we're just going to create some quiet space and I give you the opportunity to do this and then I'll finish our service in prayer. God for so many of us uh, we are I think we would freely acknowledge that we we're in the midst of a, a messy and a busy world. And sometimes Lord Jesus we sense intense pressure upon our stories upon our situations to make a decision now. And in doing so, we, we make these decisions out of the flesh rather than out of a, a divine a connection with you and with a, a surrender to you. And so Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us here today. God, give us courage to step up and to step forward in Jesus' name. And if that means pushing pause, if it means coming with a posture of prayer, if it means um, being vulnerable and sharing our story with people around us, if it means having courage to step forward, God, I pray that you'd seed into us today courage and boldness from on high to step forward in exactly these ways. God, we love you, and we really desire to be your people and, and, and to, to live in the spaces and places that you're calling us and you've created us for us, for us to be. And so fall upon us here today, uh, Spirit of the living God, and, and move in us in fresh ways and good ways and stir in us and give us the courage of Joshua to step forward into these spaces. God, we love you, and we lay, we lay our decisions and our lives before you, and we pray and ask that you'd breathe in them and move in them now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just as we go, a couple of things. One is